0: and all of the earth. Heavenly Father, and Lord, we recognize the majesty of your name this morning, Father. And we pray, O oh Father, that uh, you would be pleased to teach us this morning as we come to your word, that you would shape and mold our hearts after and in the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the eternal word. And Father, we pray these things in his precious name. Amen and amen. The title of this morning's message is Turning from a Despairing Trajectory. I don't know if it's a great title or not. It's what I have. Uh, I've looked at it several times and thought, I wish it read a little bit differently than that. But it does capture what I want to say this morning very well. I, I think that I should say something about these three words, namely turning, despairing, and trajectory. Uh, what do I mean by turning? I think we all have a good idea. Imagine you're driving in your car and you're going down a dead end street. Um, you're you're forced to do nothing else but turn around, 180 degree turn. That's what I'm referring to by turning. Despair, what do I mean by despair is the loss of hope or the relative absence of hope, if you will. And trajectory, we might think of uh, like a missile, you know, the path that a missile would follow when, you know, a missile is something that is forced into path by an external source of power. And then the path that it takes uh, is its trajectory. Um, I want to apply that really to our culture and to our society for we are a, a culture we are a, a group of people that are indeed being carried along on a path on a trajectory uh, by uh, certain forces and uh, let me flesh that out a little bit i mean for us to be a a, a nation for us to be a people that are, that are identifiable as a nation there has to be some form of catalyst that will hold us together. There has to be some cord, if you will, that keeps us all together, that keeps us from flying apart. Uh, As some authors have said, there has to be some glue uh, to hold us together. And in our particular culture, in our particular society, the glue that holds us together is a philosophy. It's a philosophy known as secular humanism. How many have heard that term before? Probably all of us have heard. I would like to take a few minutes and really define what it is because I, there's there can be a lot of confusion about that term. You know, we'll start with the word secular. You know, I think a lot of us when we think of secular, we think maybe of music or maybe of art or what have you, we say okay, secular is secular music and then there's sacred music. Uh secular music, you know, uh, uh here comes the sun or yesterday or one of those beautiful pop songs, you know. Uh, sacred music, uh, you know, uh, maybe Amazing Grace, or How Great Thou Art, or whatever your particular taste is. One form of music is used largely for entertainment. The other form of music is used for religious purposes and worship, if you will. So we have the secular and we have the sacred. We may think in terms of vocation. We may think, you know, of uh, a nursing, for example, as being a secular vocation, and for perhaps pastoral ministry being a sacred vocation, and we might make distinctions that way, uh, that's, um, that's possible, we could, we could do that. The word secular points to worldly or earthly things, but the word secular also has a connotation to it that I think sometimes escapes us. It's not only pointing to earthly things, worldly things, but it's pointing to a particular time. Uh, the present hour the present moment if you will uh, the here and now would be a good way uh, to think of it uh, secular concerns you know, earthly things the the here in the now now uh, sometimes in the church we think we could we could come to the conclusion that sacred is good and secular is bad sometimes people will make this uh, bifurcation if you will they'll 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 put secular in a bad bin and sacred in a good bin, and we, sh- we shouldn't do that. Uh, secular is not a bad word by any description. Uh, if we think about two vocations, I'm in pastoral ministry. We think about nursing, for example, or engineering, or we think about, you know, uh, whatever the vocation might be, as long as it's a God-honoring vocation, as long as it's not a vocation that's simply, you know... N- There are vocations out there that are unrighteous. I'm not speaking about those. But as long as it's a God-honoring vocation, it's holy. Uh, We shouldn't think of it in in ill respect. Uh, Secular is not a bad thing. Uh, Someone may say, well, you know, okay, you're saying secular is not a bad thing. Why are you saying it's not a bad thing? Let's think about the incarnation of Jesus for a moment. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, stepped into this world didn't he he stepped into time when we turn to the gospels matthew mark luke and john we have a record of christ's earthly ministry his earthly ministry jesus stepped into time and when he stepped into time he was concerned about people We have his record of him touching and healing people. We have record of him touching people that nobody would touch. He reached out and he touched lepers who nobody would touch. We have record of him giving sight to the blind. We have record of him healing the lame and giving mobility to the paralyzed. He's deeply concerned about this. And furthermore, if we turn to the pages of the Old Testament, we see a great concern. And in the course of this study, we're going to be looking at some of those verses where we see a great concern on behalf of God for social injustice, for uh, uh, the impoverished, if you will, for the downtrodden, for the downcast, for the widow, uh, for the orphan. We see that God is deeply concerned about these things. Deeply concerned about, about the here and now, and especially when it involves the suffering of people. So secular is not a bad thing. We, if we feel that way about secular, if we have it in our minds, it's, okay, secular is down here, sec, let's not make those distinctions. Now, when we put the ISM on the end of secular, when we make it secularism, now this is a whole different ballgame, a whole different ball game. What is secular? Ism. Well, secularism is this idea that's concentrated only on the here and now. There is no eternity. Okay, eternity is removed. There is no divine being. There is no God. God is removed. There are no absolutes, no revelation, no 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 scripture, if you will. Uh, That is removed. these things are all, all taken away uh, in secularism. Uh, now, that's a whole different matter. So with that in mind, let's turn to the word humanism. Now, humanism is also a word. i got to admit, it took me a while to get a handle on because, you know, at a glance, humanism, you think... I mean, we have a lot of words that's that are like that, like humanitarian. You hear the word humanitarian? What does is, it what is mean to be humanitarian? simply means to have... Uh, A concern for people, concern for the poor, concern for uh, those who are oppressed. You know, any kind of concern for people. I hope in that sense we're all humanitarian. Uh, We might think of the word humanist. Sometimes you read literature, literature from uh, uh, several hundred years ago. You might read literature that speaks of the Renaissance or speaks of the Reformation. We might speak of Erasmus or some of these key figures where it is said they were humanists. What does that mean? That means that they looked back to Greek culture and Latin culture. They were looking back to those things. Uh, Erasmus was one who translated the Greek and New Testament, uh, if you will. Uh, the reformers were humanists in the respect that they went back to the original languages. They went back to the Greek and they went back to the Hebrew in order to uh, study the scriptures and recover the the gospel, if you will. In that sense, I'm a humanist. Uh, I have software on my computer that I've been using now for probably, I don't know, 12 years, I guess. Uh, I use it because the, the, uh, the, the, the Greek and the Hebrew are available to me right there. I've probably used that program three or four times a week and probably have for the last 12 years. So in that sense, I would be a humanist. Sometimes we see the word humanistic. Um, if you do a search on the internet, humanistic, humanistic will come up. You, you might find this, a, a lot of hits on humanistic psychology. Humanistic psychology is, uh, psychology is concerned with the whole person, the whole man. Um, it doesn't only observe behavior, but also tries to see that behavior through the lenses of the person who's committing that behavior. Uh, so we have all these words. Humanism, what is, what is humanism? Well, humanism can be really encompassed with one key phrase, and it's a phrase we've all heard. How many have heard the phrase, man is the measure of all things? How many have heard that phrase? Man is the measure of all things. You know, at my accountant's office, there's a plaque on his wall. At least it always used to be there. On that plaque, there's quotations. Man is the measure of all things. And that is a phrase that encapsulates this whole idea of humanism. So when you take secularism and humanism and you put them together, you might have some uh, uh, sentence that goes like this. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's an idea that man is the measure of all things, and he is concerned only for the here and now, uh, with no God and no absolutes. Does that make sense? Man is the measure of all things who is concerned only of the here and now with no God and no absolutes. Now, this is the overarching philosophy in our society that is affecting every single one of us. It's carrying us along. And whether we realize it or not, it's carrying us along because it's it's what's writing our laws that we're supposed to abide by. That's what's writing our laws. Sometimes we think about some of these laws and we think, how in the world can you come up with some of these laws? Well, it makes sense if you understand the spirit of the age. A lot of these laws are just the natural conclusion of the spirit of this age. Uh, we're carried along because these this this philosophy is creating public policy. You know, it's creating the public policy that the citizens are to give their amen to. Uh, it's carrying us along because it's establishing our way of looking at life, and it's it's quite frankly, it's what we see in the movies. It's what we hear on the radio. Right, And it's certainly what you're going to get in the classroom if you're in public school uh, and in higher education. It's what you're going to get in the classroom. Uh, so I think it's important that we understand this. I think it's important that the church covers this. I think one of the great applications of covering something like this is to prepare our youngsters for college prepare our youngsters for school. This is, the, this is the philosophy that's carrying us along. So when you discover it, when you find it, don't think something strange is happening. It's not nothing new. We've been in this for a long time, a very long time. Now, I, I would suggest to you that it's a despairing trajectory. You know, We've talked about the trajectory here, the trajectory on man is the measure of all things with no absolutes, no God, uh, no eternity. Uh, No future. You know, there's no future. All all there is is an obituary, actually. And I I guess the idea is to see who can come up with the best obituary, I suppose. Quite frankly, I don't think that's real promising, you know. That's the despairing part of all of this, that, you know, this, this loss of hope. It's always looking down, if I might pick up on the language that I was using last time. This idea of always looking down. What was I doing with that message? I was setting us up for this message. The whole idea of always looking down. You can apply all the misery of always looking down to this. It can be readily applied to it and should be applied to it. It's something that I'm pur- purposely doing right now. It's always looking down because it's looking down to the here and now. Because that's all there is. There isn't anything just the here, just the now. And it's, we hear it all the time. We, how, many have, how many of you have heard the phrase, you only go around once? This is it, man. There isn't anything else. You only go around one time, so hey, I think it's this lack of a future that's led us to create the bucket list. The bucket list. <laughs> yeah. This is it, so there's X amount of things there. you know, what possesses a, a 90-year-old or a hundred-year-old to jump out of a plane? Well, it's on my bucket list, you know. I want to do this before I kick that bucket. You know, I gotta do it now or I'm never gonna get to do it. I don't know. I mean I don't know what possesses a hundred-year-old to jump out of a plane. I don't know what possesses a ten-year-old or a twenty-year-old or a thirty-year-old to jump out of a plane. I don't care to jump out of a plane. They got seat belts, you know. I want to have my seat belt on when I'm in a plane. But to each their own. I understand it is thrilling to go through the air like that. Um, but if you, if this is if there's no future, then you only go around once. We might um, we might put it in the Apostle Paul's words: If there's no future, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the sentiment that the Apostle Paul uses in the Corinthian letters, isn't it? Well, guess what? What's everybody doing? Eating. Drinking. For tomorrow you die. So it shouldn't seem strange to us, should it? When we look at it this way. Should a a rampant drug addiction problem in our culture be something strange to us, given the fact there's no tomorrow? If there's no eternal, if there's no future, if all there is is the here and the now, and the here and the now is real bad, then it only makes sense that we would try to numb ourselves from it, wouldn't it? That's the part of the despairing part. It's despairing. If things are bad, then yes, let's escape into hobbies. Let's escape into intoxication, working, gambling, whatever it is, whatever it is. If there's nothing else, then jump in and dive in, dive in all the way. And let's add, you know, the fact that some people, I mean, if Listen, if that's all there is and things get bad enough, let's not be surprised that more and more people just say, you know, I'm checking out. I'm checking out. And we have a rise in that, don't we? It makes perfect sense. We've got to turn from this despairing trajectory, and we we might ask ourselves, okay, how, how? How do we turn from this despairing trajectory? You know, this, you know, the kind of sermon that only explains what's going on and then says, okay, everybody, uh, um, the next hymn is you'll find the next song in hymn number 333. Please rise and we'll sing together. That's a worthless sermon. It's a worthless sermon. We need to do more than just describe what's going on. What do we do about it? Well, let's think about this philosophy of secular humanism. Let's think about that for a moment. First thing we need to understand about secular humanism is is it is a faith perspective. It is a faith perspective. To say that there is a God is a a position of faith. To say that there isn't a God is also a position of faith. Both are a faith perspective. Uh, you can't separate. This whole idea of separating church and Steve, you, you can't separate what you fundamentally believe from how you're going to behave. In fact, our behavior is really our theology actualized. That's what our behavior is. Our behavior is our set of beliefs actually actualized in practice. That's what it is. That's why when Jesus comes, and He, he comes during His earthly ministry, His earthly ministry, and he calls everybody to believe. Why is he calling everybody to believe? Because as you believe in Christ Jesus, guess what's going to happen? Your behavior is radically going to change. Because you, you can't simply... You know, secular humanism is saying... And the, the, the interesting thing about our society for so many years... This is tightening up. It's, it's definitely tightening up. We can feel it tightening up. But for the longest time, secular humanism said, Listen, you can, you can believe anything you want to believe. We don't care. You want to believe in God? Go ahead and believe in God. That's wonderful. Go ahead and do that. You want to believe in God? Believe in God. Just keep it in your house. Keep it at home. Keep it in little meeting rooms like this one. Keep it. Keep it there. Don't bring it into the public sphere. And we've bought into this idea that okay, we can all we can all do that. You know, we can we can take things that we deeply believe in and we can put them. We can kind of lock them up in a little box somewhere. And then when we go into the public sphere, okay, we. We're not going to believe that no more. Suddenly in the public sphere, there is no God. There are no absolutes. There is no eternity. And we've been functioning like that for a long time. All of us really were born into this, functioning this way for the most part. And it it shouldn't surprise us that you end up with these postmodern thoughts that, you know, where people will grow up one day and say, you know, I mean, that's your truth and that's your truth and that's your truth. And because there's no absolutes, people don't even hang on and even fasten on to any of that stuff, you know. But the fact of the matter is there's a lot of friction out there. Why is there a lot of friction out there? Because you really can't separate what you believe uh, from the policies that you're going to write and the way that you think things should go. Uh, And that's where... All of the friction comes. Uh, public policy, behavior, how you view this world, world is indeed a, a product of faith. Uh, how do we turn from secular humanism? We turn from it by embracing a different faith system. That's how you turn from it by embracing a different faith system. You yeah. know, think about Jesus when he. One of the first things that he said during his earthly ministry is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, what? Repent and believe in the gospel, right? He's calling us to embrace a different faith system. And I'm going to say that in most cases, we turn from it by embracing something that we already believe. And I'm speaking we as general in general sense, I'm speaking we as our, as not only us here at Tri-State Community Church. I'm speaking, when I say we, I'm speaking about it, the, our, our, our beloved citizens here in the valley. And uh, really our entire culture for that matter. You know, s- studies still suggest that most of us believe in God. Studies suggest that most of us believe in God. Okay, that's a good starting point. I'm suggesting that it's a good starting point as we as we reach out to people. We start out with that. You know, we start out with that. And a good place to start is Psalm 8.3. What's the psalmist say here? He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Notice, in Psalm 3, it's your heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and stars which you have set in place. And by the way, this isn't this is a hymn. Remember the genre of Psalm 8. It's a hymn. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord. Not O Lord, my Lord, O Lord, our Lord. This is a hymn. This is a congregation that's singing. It's a congregation that's looking out at this world. It's a congregation that's saying, oh, when I look at your heavens, whose heavens? Your heavens. Look at the antecedent of yours is is Yahweh. O Lord, our Lord, verse 1. O Yahweh, our Adonai. Remember last night. That's the original language. The psalmists and the singers are not calling the Lord by His title. They're calling Him by the name that He has given us in His Word that's used thousands of times in His Word. It's Yahweh. They're saying, "Oh Yahweh, our Adonai. Oh Yahweh, our Are Adonai, how majestic is your name? Whose name? Yahweh's name. How majestic is your name? Yahweh's name. You have set your glory. Whose glory? Yahweh's glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established praise. Who? Yahweh has established praise. Um, Because of your foes, distill the enemy when I look at your heavens. Whose heavens? Yahweh's heavens, you see. Yahweh's heavens. The work of your fingers. It's not the work of random chance. It's not the work of cold, lifeless, impersonal forces that are just kind of combining the way they do. I don't understand how they combine and collide and do all the things that they do. It's Yahweh's heavens. The things that are in outer space in their various orbs and spheres and you know scientists tell us that the sun and the moon the relationship is so sophisticated that if the earth the angle of the earth is tilted just slightly this way or slightly that way we either freeze to death or we burn up one or the other and the whole notion that this could happen without an architect really requires a lot of faith doesn't it quite frankly i mean here's a starting point for all of us is to uh, is to pick up right here in creation your heavens the work of your fingers which you have set in place. I'm going to submit to you that Psalm 8 3 is not that hard to believe. It's not that hard to believe. Someone might be surprised that I say that because I'm always saying, listen, without God's grace, no one comes to saving faith. But I'm not talking about saving faith right now. I'm talking about knowledge of the existence of God. You know, in the passage that we read just a little bit ago in Romans... You know, I chose that passage this morning for this particular reason. In verse 19, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, says, for what can be known about God is plain. And he's speaking about all, you, all human beings here. He says, what can be known about God is plain because God has made it plain. In verse 20, he says, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And the conclusion is that we're all without excuse every one of us why because God has already given us this grace so that we would know that he exists we all know that he exists we've all received that grace that's why i say psalm 83 isn't that isn't that hard to believe it's not that hard to believe of course paul also says we suppress this knowledge with our with our wickedness with our hardness of heart if you will we suppress that we need god's grace uh, where that is concerned. But I would say that, that uh, Psalm 8.3 is not that hard to believe. Psalm 8.3 is hard to take into the public square. It's not hard to believe. It's hard to take into the public square. Um, secular humanism says you can believe it if you want, but you keep it at home. Now, I want to stop and pause right now because... I don't want to give anyone the impression that I'm trying to incite activism. And probably most of you know me better than that anyway. Activism can be ugly no matter what it's for. No, I mean we could if you want to become a dreadful irritant to our society, then take up that. Take take that up. You will quickly become so dreadfully irritating that no one will listen to you. They just won't listen to you. And really, if we're going to if we're going to just preach these things without really caring enough about other people to love them, caring enough about other people to want their welfare and want what's best for them, then you, maybe we are dreadful irritants. Now, what I'm talking about here is trying to reason in love over a cup of coffee. That's what I'm trying. That's what I'm talking about here. I think this is a good this is a good place for us to. Uh, to pick up, uh, it's a challenging place for us to pick up in many respects because, you know, secular humanism hasn't only affected our culture. Secular humanism has practically captivated the church. And probably some of you saw that coming. It's captivated the church. Secular humanism, I remember reading R.C. Sproul saying this one time. He says, listen, the state has made a deal with the church. And the church has made a deal with the state. The state said, listen, You guys can believe whatever you want. Just keep it to yourselves. We'll even give you tax exemption status. And the church said, okay. That's what we'll do. It's been a lethal compromise. It's been a lethal compromise. And we're affected by it. We're deeply affected by it. We're affected by it in this way. We have all these little compartments in our lives and in our hearts that we put God in. And when I say we, I'm talking about the church at large. I'm talking about the church at large, but that includes each one of us, including myself. I'll just give you an example. What happens when Christmas falls on Sunday? What happens? I find that to be so ironic. That Christmas, traditionally, has been the celebration of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But it takes a back seat to open up presents under a green tree. That's a That's that's putting God in a compartment. On December 25th, we're going to see that take place this year. Christmas falls on a Sunday. It's just one of the areas where we've got God in this little compartment. It's safe for us to believe in Him if we keep Him in this little compartment. After a while, we don't want Him really fooling around with our holiday tradition we've got our holiday tradition we can't fool around with that what's 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 aunt mary going to think if we fool around with that we can't do that we're expected to be here and there and we've got all these things to do and now some of us might be saying hey, you know i know where i'm going to be if i'm not sick i'm going to be sitting right here on on December 25th. Well, the principle still applies. We can think of other examples in our lives where we've got God on a little compartment. We're carried along by this, you see. Um, and, I, I, you know, if we're going to call a culture, if we're going to try to reason with a culture, the very people that we want to reach are the people that are watching, observing, and thinking. And, you know, when they're watching us. They're observing us. They're thinking... And the last thing that we want to do is, is, is dishonor our Lord by being blatant hypocrites. They're asking people to do things that we haven't lifted a finger to do ourselves. Does that make sense? Um, I would say, really, lastly, that this the secularism, secularist humanism, really is a schizophrenic position. I think I should say that before we wrap up. It really is quite schizophrenic to, to um, believe one way in private and another way in public, is it not? Okay, that's probably enough for today. I mean, in conclusion, I want to challenge us to understand and realize that we're on a trajectory of despair and really in the weeks ahead you know, I want to invite us to a meaningful alternative. I want, to, I want us to be able to invite one another to a meaningful alternative. And what's the meaningful alternative? Of course, it's Christ Jesus. There is, a, there is an eternity. We have a reason for hope. Uh, we have a very good reason for hope. Uh, get it out of your heads that there's only the here and the now. Uh, what we're doing right now has eternal consequences a matter of fact. And the here and now is exciting because the here and now is an opportunity that we have that we'll never have in all eternity. Uh, We have an opportunity right now to glorify God in such a way that we will never get actually in eternity. Um, So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word, Father, with these simple words in Psalm 8 and verse 3. Just a simple reflection that... This universe is yours. The, you've made them with your fingers. You, you made this universe with your, your fingers. How personal is, is this language, this poetry, how beautiful it is that you've created this beautiful universe and that you've set it in play and that, Father, you didn't just wind it up and walk away from it, but, Father you are actively pursuing and sustaining it. For you so loved the world that you gave uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, that uh, whoever would believe in him would have a wonderful future. And there's no reason for any of us, save the hardness of our hearts, to uh, feel that there's no future. Uh, So, Father, we pray that, Lord... Uh, you would enable us to search and seek in the areas of our lives where we, we really do need to turn from this trajectory of despair, that we really need to turn. We really need to look and see how we've got you in little boxes here and little boxes there. And Father, we pray that you will give us the insight to see these things, to see the inconsistencies of our lives. And Father, we pray that, Lord, you would give us hearts, you would fill our hearts with love for our our brothers and sisters, our citizens all around uh, this valley and in, in, in our culture, that Father in love, we would come alongside with your truth, that Father you would use us to be agents of hope, that we'd bring hope to despair and that Father we would we would see people turn from uh, from, uh, from this, this awful trajectory that we're on. and we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.